Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan. And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show. We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack Episode 6, The Soviet Chinese Spy Wars. I'm your host Walla and with me are my co-hosts, Knight and Spartan. Hey guys, how's it going today? Doing great. Yeah, doing good, doing good. Cool. I'm really looking forward to hosting our very first episode specific to espionage, a subtopic of Redacted, which I am personally redacted, but don't tell anyone I said that. It's a secret. You owe us and the listeners an explanation of why that information was redacted. (laughs) I'm not telling anyone. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now put on your Kevlar, secure your lickies and chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. Following the end of World War II, the world anticipated an ease in tensions amongst global powers, and with Nazi Germany eradicated, a hint of normality was on the horizon. However, a sequence of unprecedented events followed in the wake of World War II. As the saying goes, cut off the head of the snake, or in this case, a global conflict, another one grows in its place. Here I am referring to the Cold War, the birthplace of the nuclear arms race, and thus a sophisticated network of espionage emerges. Whilst the basis of the Cold War cannot be defined solely by the nuclear arms race, it can also not be solely defined as a result of geopolitical tension just between the United States and the United Socialist Soviet Republic, or the USSR. In this episode, the team and I will analyse the growing tensions between allies within the Eastern Bloc of the Cold War, specifically the relationship between the Soviet Union and China. First, we will briefly examine the Sino-Soviet split from 1956 to 1966, and then we'll look at the Sino-Soviet border clashes of 1969. This background information is pertinent to understand why these once allies engaged in acts of espionage against each other. We will then look at intelligence, or intel, collected directly from KGB counterintelligence, where we will examine how the Chinese gathered intelligence and how they recruited spies within the USSR. We will also look at prominent Chinese intelligence officers who were caught and also look at intel gathered from the Chinese perspective. Before we get into the nitty gritty of the episode though, I would just like to quickly mention that the politics discussed specific to the Cold War and Sino-Soviet relations in this episode are not the views of the hosts and that we will do our best to navigate that portion without bias for the sake of context without any intention of turning this into a political platform. Let's get into it. 
On February 14, 1950, the Sino-Soviet Treaty of Friendship and Alliance was signed by the People's Republic of China, or the PRC, and the Soviet Union to, quote, guarantee Soviet military and economic aid to the newly established Chinese Communist government, end quote. Representative and Chairman Mao Song of the Chinese Communist Party, or the CCP, or Communist Party of China, declared the birth of the PRC and the New Republic's alliance with the Soviet Union. However, this treaty was short-lived after the United Nations General Assembly adopted Resolution 505, which forbade, quote, threats to the political independence and territorial integrity of China and the peace of the Far East, end quote. The resolution was passed on the 1st of February 1952, which confirmed the Soviet Union had violated the terms of the treaty by directly assisting the CCP during the Chinese Civil War. Records from the digitalarchive.org indicate that the Soviet Union enabled the Chinese People's Liberation Army, or the PLA's invasion, in October 1949 of Xinjiang, located on the border of the Mongolian People's Republic and Soviet Central Asia. Toward the end of September 1949, Mao, remember the Repum chairman of the CCP, issued a plea of assistance to Stalin, and in an official telegram, he wrote, The railroads in this region are poor, the conditions are difficult. There are few people and there is no food, he wrote. We acutely need and hope that you will help us with 30 to 50 transport aircraft to ship food, clothing, key personnel and some of the troops. Officially consenting to the several requests much similar to this, Stalin approved the following aid from the Soviet Union to the CCP to assist in the invasion. Provided the means of transport that essentially allowed a more accelerated invasion, specifically transported aircraft and provided aviation fuel and also provided 10,000 tonnes of grain. So to summarise, the Soviet Union essentially facilitated the PLA's entry into Xinjiang and I guess without the Soviets' assistance in this regard, it's questionable whether the PLA would have succeeded in this invasion, thus explaining the Soviet Union's interference in the Chinese Civil War. The collapse of the Sino-Soviet alliance marked the transformation of the Cold War from bipolarity to multipolarity. In short, if the great powers are more than two, the system will be multipolar. If they are two, it will be bipolar. Whilst the collapse of the alliance did not officially initiate hostilities, however, it is important to note that Sino-Soviet relations were tenuous from the beginning. You know, this kind of reminds me, uh, there's this one instance that demonstrates this point on, in November 16th of 1950, Viktor Abakumov wrote to Stalin in a special communication where he reported that, and I quote from the document, I am reporting that, at present, over 40,000 white Russian emigrants live in the territory of the People's Republic of China, mainly in Shanghai and the cities of Manchuria, a majority of whom were nationalized in 1945 through 47. He will go on to say that, based on materials that they obtained, that the MGB USSR uncovered 470 agents of foreign intelligence services from among the white, from the Russian white emigrants living in China. These agents conducted active subversion against the Soviet Union during the war on assignment from the Japanese intelligence service. After the war, a considerable proportion of these were enlisted by American and English intelligence organs, and these days they continue to conduct espionage activity against the USSR and People's Democratic of China." End quote. So, clearly, like, there's this tension of just China having foreign spies within its place and being housed in China, and UK not being... And not the UK, the USSR not being cool with that. Right, so that's like 
well before the Soviet split even. Yeah, I was going to say, we're talking 1950s here. And I mean, the, 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 the Sino-Soviet spy wars occurred in the 70s. So there, there's mm. evidence of espionage occurring, I mean, even less than a decade after World War II. So it's actually interesting, one thing to consider, because also in the same document, Abakumov was even suggesting trying to use the Chinese um, own ministry, the Ministry of Public Safety, to try to be a tool as an organ to weed out any spies or anything like that against the USSR. Mm. And it's interesting that they leave out China in that same sentence. Uh, clearly nothing to care about China in any way, shape or form which also formed a big part of the Soviet and Chinese relations. So, yeah, that is quite a perfect example of geopolitical tensions rising um, in the 1950s, and that was well before the Soviet split, and you can kind of see how that was a... it's kind of a gradual process that did not necessarily lead to a boiling point, which then led to a total war. You know, it was kind of a combination of back and forth rivalry over a period of time, which is particularly evident within the Sino-Soviet split from 1956 to 1966. So now we're going to talk about the Sino-Soviet split. And from this point onwards, I'm going to be referring to some notes I made out of a cha- out of chapters from this book written by Nicholas Koo called Sino-Soviet Rivalry and the Termination of the Sino-Vietnamese Alliance. Just to kind of provide further detail of the Sino-Soviet split and more background information. So we have conflict between the Soviet Union and China, which began to escalate following Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev's de-Stalinization speech at the 20th Congress of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union in February 1956. This was a critical development in the Cold War. You know, it kind of it marked the, the beginning of an extended period of rivalry for influence, and that's within and without the communist world. It is also mentioned here that perhaps the most significant consequence of the rivalry was the de facto termination of the Sino-Soviet alliance, as we mentioned previously. Two events that should be highlighted in this instance that really sets the stage for an escalation in Sino-Soviet relations. Um, notably during Chinese Premier Zhao Enlai's November 1964 trip to Moscow was initially the fall of Nikita Khrushchev on the 14th of October 1964, which you know kind of ascended a new Soviet leadership that was open to exploring more positive relations with China thus an opportunity to review the Sino-Soviet relationship. Secondly, China's successful testing of an atomic weapon on the 16th of October 1964. So this can most certainly be aligned with the fact that China relied heavily on the Soviet Union. And as we discussed earlier, particularly with the PLA's invasion of Xinjiang, here you have a country that relied on its neighbour, particularly at a time of major internal crisis, i.e. the civil war. So the successful testing of this atomic weapon was a huge development for China at at the time, which I suppose could place them on an equal playing field with the Soviet Union in terms of status of power. So there we have an overview of rising tensions between the Soviet Union and China. So with this in mind, one might assume that this is inevitably leading to the collapse of Sino-Soviet relations. Some members of the Soviet leadership 
such as Yuri Andropov, the head of the Communist Party liaison department, were sceptical about improving Sino-Soviet relations. However, others were initially interested in at least limited rapprochement with Beijing. The chairman of the Soviet Council of Ministers, Alexei Kosygin, refused to accept the inevitability of a Sino-Soviet split. He noted, We are communists and they are communists. It is hard to believe we will not be able to reach an agreement if we meet face to face. Others, such as First Secretary Leonid Brezhnev, did not take an immediate stance. The Chinese leadership under Mao had a radically different perspective on bilateral relations. At this point of the Sino-Soviet dispute, Chinese policy towards the Soviet Union sought one of two absolutist aims. That was a total Soviet surrender in the Sino-Soviet dispute, or failing that, a termination of, of the relationship between the Soviet and Chinese Communist parties. The first aim was not met, leaving the second aim, a termination of relationship, as the only course of action. What followed was a series of border clashes between the two nations. I'd like to share a quote from the book I mentioned at the beginning of this segment, which kind of encapsulates how the broader, how the border relations affected the Sino-Soviet relationship. Quote, a Chinese study of the Sino-Soviet Cold War relationship has pointed out that the state of the Sino-Soviet border relations during the Cold War reflected general trends in the overall Sino-Soviet relationship. The study noted that as Sino-Soviet relations deteriorated, the number of border clashes increased accordingly from 1,000 in the January 1960 to October 1964 period to 4,189 during October 1964 to March 1969. Beijing initiated the Sino-Soviet border conflict even though both sides were confirmed nuclear states, end quote. So now that we have discussed briefly the rising tensions within diplomatic relations between the Soviet Union and China, let's take a look at the Sino-Soviet border clashes of 1969 that erupted with the Sino-Soviet split. Knight, I believe you did some research in the border clashes, so take it away. So as Walla duly noted, prior to March of 1969, there was a very big buildup of tensions for both the USSR and the Chinese along the border where these two nations were. Soviet forces stationed in Mongolia, thanks to the Soviet Outer Mongolia Alliance of 1966, the USSR had reasonably easy means to maintain armed forces at the border between China and the USSR. China's skirmishes on the border increasingly became a very big agitation to the Soviet Union, and all these skirmishes resulted culminated and resulted in two major incidents in March of 1969, each occurring on March 2nd and March 15th on a small stretch of land that the USSR called Demonsky Island and the People's Republic of China called Zimbao Island. On March 1st, a Chinese force of around 300 troops dug foxholes and telephone lines for the night and at 11 a.m. of March 2nd, a small detachment of Chinese troops crossed for an ambush. However, they were easily spotted. Apparently, they were also saying um, chance that Mao had written up. And apparently, they were quoting Maoist rhetoric as they were going, so they were quite easily spotted. And the USSR suppressed the ambush, utilizing civilians as ammo carriers because they were so short-staffed at the occasion. The USSR was unable to hold the Mansky Island though for long after they chased the Chinese off of it. Incidentally, both sides would claim they had won the fight for that day. March 15th, however, 
was an entirely different story. It has been noted that it is not clear who initiated the conflict on March 15th, but the generally accepted narrative is as follows, quote, Apparently the Russians increased the frequency of their patrols of the island after March 2nd. They still did not station a permanent force on the island, however, lest the Chinese zero in on them with artillery and mortar fire. A small scouting party did spend the night of the 14th through 15th on the island, and it is possible that this group was used as bait to lure the Chinese into a frontal attack. The Chinese say that the other side sent many tanks to the island and to the river arm around 4 a.m on the 15th, attacking Chinese guards on patrol. It is not clear why such a large force would be needed to attack a patrol. Nonetheless, the Soviets state that their own early morning patrol consisting of two armored cars led by Senior Lieutenant Lev Menkovsky discovered a group of Chinese logged on the island, apparently having sneaked over the previous night. Whatever the initial cause, the battle began in earnest around 9.45 or 10 a.m with mortar and artillery from the Chinese bank, and by 10.30, according to Soviet accounts, heavy fire from three points on the Chinese bank." End quote. The outcome of this entire fighting was a complete disaster for the USSR, with China able to hold Zongbao, or Damaski Island. The overall impact of the two battles was 91 Chinese total casualties and over 200 for the USSR. With such a devastating loss for the USSR, and on the brink of that, Soviet radio stations began implicitly threatening nuclear war over Chinese channels. Conflicts after March 15th ceased along the border, although both sides were still mobilizing along the border. It won't be until the death of Ho Chi Minh of Vietnam in September 3rd, 1969, that both sides would de-escalate from this border conflict. What, what, what is it about? the death of Ho Chi Minh that caused the de-escalation. So, Ho Chi Minh, death of Ho Chi Minh, because Vietnam was a big place that both China and Soviet Russia were heavily invested in, China especially, um, given the Ho Chi Minh route. Right. And with Ho Chi Minh's death, of course, China had to send a delegation to respect, you know, the fallen comrade. And so did Russia. And so Russia tried to take the advantage of this opportunity to meet up with China and come to good terms. And so that, I should say the USSR, forgive me for Russia. So the USSR was trying to come on good terms with China. And so this provided a good occasion for that. And so that's kind of why this marks as like the de-escalation point. Right. And this is all going on obviously 1969 we're talking the united states is heavily involved in and in vietnam vietnam right right okay okay that tracks thank you thanks for that night so there we have a somewhat brief overview of the tension and hostilities rising between the soviet union and china over a period of 15 years so now we have a solid background and an understanding on why there might be spies present within the ussr specifically throughout the 1970s so now let's look at Chinese espionage activity in the territory of the USSR. At this point onwards, we will examine several articles published in the 1980s, which were published as a part of a volume of KGB papers, which delve into detail about Chinese espionage activity within the USSR. Initial analysis of these primary sources are written by Philip Kovacek, 
a researcher of Russian and East European state security and intelligence organizations, who also teaches at the University of San Francisco and runs the Czechist Monitor, a blog on the operations and personalities of the Soviet and Russian state security and intelligence organizations. Through this portion of the episode, we will go through four parts of the KGB journal, written and published by several different KGB counterintelligence officers who had gathered intel on Chinese spies through the 1970s. This portion will be divided into sections such as intelligence gathering and recruitment, military counterintelligence, and prominent Chinese spies who got caught. The following information is from Russian primary source documents and may contain inaccuracies. The translated texts are solely the claims of KGB counterintelligence. So as Walla mentioned, the KGB journal, specifically in part one of this journal, KGB counterintelligence officer Captain N.S. Kuznetsov uh, focused on Chinese intelligence officers who operated within the USSR under diplomatic and legal cover, uh, and intelligence officers who were primarily based at the following locations. Uh, the first being the Chinese embassy in Moscow, the headquarters of the Chinese state news agency, uh, as well as the Chinese civil aviation office at the Moscow airport, as well as trade and border guard delegations in border towns, the names of which I will not try to pronounce. Despite the vast array of locations in which these Chinese intelligence officers were located, Kuznetsov stresses that the Chinese embassy was the main controlling post of Chinese espionage within the USSR. Evidently, uh, it also hosted officers of Chinese state security, the Foreign Intelligence Service, and the Chinese Military Intelligence Service. This is also corroborated by Major General A.G. Kovalenko and Colonel B.I. Ponomerov in Part 2 of the aforementioned KGB journal, where they stated that the Chinese embassy in Moscow was the control post of Chinese espionage in the country. They claimed that embassy personnel engaged in the following intelligence activities. The collection of political, economic, military, and scientific technical information. Uh, I really do want to highlight the scientific technical information that's going to become very relevant later on in the episode. The collection of rumors and similar information that could be used as ideological diversion against the Soviet state and international forums. Uh, the coordination of intelligence networks and agents within the country. The monitoring of the Soviet media, which persists today. The overall recruitment efforts, including those directed at foreign journalists, diplomats in the USSR, especially those from so-called developing countries. And the supplying of equipment and providing support to the Chinese intelligence officers who were operating without official cover, so they were illegals uh, in the USSR. As a KGB counterintelligence officer, Kuznetsov was able to build a profile around what characteristics would make a good Chinese intelligence officer. That was a, a significant part of his job in counterintelligence, you know, is for him to identify key behaviors, traits within specific individuals who were under the suspicion of committing, uh, committing espionage within USSR territory. According to Kuznetsov, characteristics of Chinese intelligence officers were as follows. They were extremely cautious, wary and unwilling in dealing with Soviet citizens, well-trained in Russian language, and often quite successful in evading KGB surveillance. Now, in terms of gathering intelligence in a foreign country, it is done through the common practice of recruitment. The Chinese in this case, according to Kuznetsov, utilized diplomatic events and parties organized by the Chinese embassy to recruit either foreign or Soviet citizens or even Chinese permanent residents, including members of the ethnic, 
uh, of the ethnic Chinese community within the USSR. Recruitment, however, should not be perceived as something as simple as just observing a crowd and handpicking whoever might seem fit to become recruited based on uh, a cursory glance or a quick observation. Uh, recruitment is actually a lengthy process that requires intricate checks, controls, and uh, actually includes unannounced visits to places of residence. Uh, the entire process typically takes years. So there was a lot of investment that went into this process. This is something that Kuznetsov really asserts in the article. However, it would seem that the intricacies and sensitivity of recruitment uh, were universal among espionage practices globally, not just specific to the USSR. Kuznetsov mentions in the article an example of ways that Chinese intelligence tried to recruit existing Chinese permanent residents within the USSR. One resident in particular uh, was receiving frequent invitations to embassy events where they could be surveilled, always being received by the same embassy official. So a handler uh, was also consistently receiving gifts, whether this be national souvenirs, small amounts of money, etc., uh, as well as inquiries about him or her via other channels, so checks on that individual. What this gives us is an idea of the understanding, uh, at least a small understanding, regarding intelligence gathering and recruitment processes. So now we have a small understanding regarding intelligence gathering and recruitment processes, uh, but we're going to take a look at the Osibist of the USSR and the Tigers of China. If that seems a little confusing, that's okay. Again, we're talking about espionage, and we're going to explain that as, as succinctly as we possibly can. So, who were the Osibists? Basically, the Osibists was simply the name given to military counterintelligence officers. Um, within the KGB, Soviet military counterintelligence constituted what was called the Third Main Directorate. It controlled the special departments within the Soviet military. They were tasked to protect against penetration agents within the Soviet military ranks. Let's get into the specifics of military counterintelligence within the USSR. According to the third main director officer, Major A.A. Karev, in Article 3 of the KGB journals, Chinese intelligence services were collecting a vast array of information regarding Soviet military forces. This included the number of units, equipment, locations, uh, military transportation, communication networks, and information from the civil defense organization, and also personnel and even morale. The sophistication of the network of Chinese spies was not limited within the confines of the USSR. Karev states that the surveillance of the Soviet military forces by the Chinese diplomats extended beyond the borders. Apparently, there was an increase in Chinese diplomatic activities around the Soviet military infrastructure in all areas of the world in which the Soviet military maintains its presence. And that's even from Eastern Europe, let's say Poland and Czechoslovakia, all the way to Africa. For example, Karev talks about ships that are anchored in the Somaliland port of Berbera being photographed from a car with Chinese diplomatic license plates. Another example is the Moscow-Beijing Railroad. Intelligence gathered suggested that Chinese intelligence officers often worked under the cover of train conductors. That would essentially allow visual reconnaissance of the places that the railroad passed through. Um, this would also allow them to initiate conversations and make friends with other travelers and specifically Soviet military officers and their families 
including children from time to time. Um, this this makes a lot of sense though. Um, some some of these ports of entry or or these different transportation methods, because mm-hmm. as I'm sure each of you have experienced, and I'm sure listeners uh, have experienced, when you're traveling, I mean, you you end up in conversation with absolute strangers on on a on a consistent basis. Like it's just normal. Yeah. Yeah. Right? I was going to say, it's just, uh, I mean, it's, it seems like a great place where if, if, if you're all waiting for, whether it be a train or in more modern times to, you know, sitting in the airport, uh, once you've cleared yeah. security and, and you're at your gate, conversation picks up. Yeah. Realistically, it's like this hotbed of intelligence, uh, yeah. just waiting to be gathered by literally anyone. I mean, anyone you could be talking to could be wanting specific information from you, but you'd be none the wiser because, I mean, you're just trying to catch a train, you know, trying to get from point A to point B. Right. um, Yeah, it's a very interesting way of, um, yet common way of collecting intelligence. Um, Yeah, it's, it's become even more sophisticated now where, you know, with technology and I'm not sure how, how it related to, um, the, the, the Sino-Soviet spy wars in, in the 70s. But, mm. you know, if, if you're passing through an airport now and mm. a passport gets scanned, I mean, they know where you're from. Oh, and exactly, yeah. It, it would be easy to send an individual in plain clothes to, to just strike up a conversation and see what kind mm. of information they can glean, find mm-hmm. out who you are and, and you know interesting oh no that that is very interesting like even with technology today like you might not even have to strike up a conversation these days because i mean everyone's carrying like an electronic wallet their phone right yeah all their card details contacts and information so i would assume that it would be as as simple as pressing a button rather mm. than even talking to people in most cases. So yeah, especially when you connect to the Wi-Fi, because when you connect to the Wi-Fi oh, yeah. in an airport, it lets you know you're connecting to a public network and mm-hmm. your information is not necessarily yours. That's why I feel like um, VPNs are so popular these days and so encouraged right. to use because it's kind of like a safeguard system to then just um, connecting to public Wi-Fi. Because if you are mm. connected to public Wi-Fi, it makes you incredibly vulnerable to any kind of attack from anyone on the same network. It does. But then you can get even further paranoid and go, but who's operating the VPN? Because you're giving them your information. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) I mean, that's a a really large rabbit hole. (laughs) Oh, yeah. We're not going to go down that. You know, it's just nothing. Nothing is secure. Nothing is truly secure anymore. Absolutely not. If it ever was. That's true. Yeah. Oh, that debate of privacy. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> we won't get into that. Yeah, we we consent to invasion yeah. of our own privacy these days though. Every time you yeah, you, yeah. you accept a cookie or you know when you visit a website or you agree to the conditions terms of use. Yeah, all those terms and conditions that you never read but accept you, anyway because right. you want to get to the next page. You give it away. You give it away. Yeah, yeah so uh Railroads are quite a, um, an easy place to pick up com- uh, 
pick up intelligence back in those days. Mm. Um, but also like alongside these officers uh, operating under legal covers, um, as we mentioned just very briefly earlier, the Chinese intelligence services also used to run, run these long-term or future-orientated illegals programs where they tried to integrate their officers into the Soviet Union using illicit means. Um, now, in this article, Karev kind of referred to the testimonies of those he called bona fide Chinese intelligence defectors, claiming that the Chinese intelligence leadership used mass border migration into the Soviet Union as a convenient cover for its illegal intelligence officers. Now, according to an exposed Chinese officer, codenamed Quan, uh, the Ministry of Public Security began a systematic training of its illegal officers for operating in the Soviet Union in the mid-1960s. And um, the Chinese military at the time had also begun training special forces units, namely the Tigers, who were kind of being prepared for anti-Soviet sabotage activities. And Karev claimed that the actions presented a real threat to Soviet border military infrastructure and warned that they really needed to be taken seriously. Um, he also talked about how the Chinese military had dramatically increased its capabilities regarding technical and signals intelligence collection um, by purchasing optical and radio equipment from West Germany and other Western countries. Um, so this would mean essentially that eavesdropping would be a lot more simple on Soviet border military exercises as well as uh, missile and satellite launches. According to the head of the second main directorate of the KGB counterintelligence in the Kazakh Soviet Republic, Colonel Nikitin and his deputy lieutenant Colonel Penkov in Article 4 stated that Chinese intelligence services also had a small they also had smaller special forces units amongst border areas to kidnap Soviet citizens. Um, in this wow. article, they discussed the case of a Kazakh shepherd um, who was a Soviet citizen but born in China in 1932, codenamed Sputnik. And, what? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and I don't know. I don't know if you guys know, but a little tidbit for the space nerds out there, Sputnik was actually the name used for the artificial satellite launched by the Soviet Union space program in the 1950s. What, wasn't Sputnik like the first? Uh, yeah, that was, I think there was Sputnik the first and Sputnik the second, but yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's quite an ironic code name if you well, ask it, me because it, it's, it's a satellite, you know. It's funny though, because the satellite was used for spying, mm. intelligence gathering. And here you have mm -hmm. this, this captured shepherd who was yeah. also used for intelligence gathering. Yeah. It's, it's a quite a unique code name for that instance it's, i did well with yeah. it <laughs> um yeah there's two so, sputniks that's oh there's two sputniks it, apparently yeah. there's a shepherd yeah. and then there's a metal there's a metal <laughs> floating device oh. <laughs> I th okay i thought you were talking about the satellite itself i'm like yeah there's a sputnik one and then sputnik two anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 flesh and blood Sputnik came first. Yes, yes, he did. He oh, did he? Yeah. Apparently, nineteen thirty-two. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Oh, but born in China in thirty-two, yeah. right? Yeah, oh. yeah, yeah. It's I. Yeah, yeah. You, you have no. to work on it. I'm I'm gonna look more into that because I'm really curious. I'm really curious. Yeah, yeah. 
What's that? Sorry. Oh, meaty Sputnik came first. Meaty. Did you say meaty Sputnik came first? Exactly. Meaty Butt. (laughs) Meaty Sputnik. Meaty Sputnik. So we got got meaty Sputnik and metal Sputnik. (laughs) They're brothers, but a little distant at the same time. Oh, yeah. Separated (laughs) by a bit of atmosphere, but anyway. Atmosphere and (laughs) fucking atomic level. Meaty Sputnik. <laughs> I swear to God, we need to we need to put out stickers for the podcast that just say uh, Meaty Sputnik and have yeah. like a hamburger fucking t- satellite. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, that's right, listeners. You heard it here first. <laughs> meaty Sputnik. We copyright. <laughs> Sorry. Here's our off-brand hamburgers, Meaty Sputniks. Yeah. Yeah, we and right now, right <laughs> because. What Western right now with everything going on with Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. McDonald's is no longer a thing in in Russia. Yeah. They've rebranded it. So instead of uh, a, a instead of a, a McDouble, you can get a meaty you can get a meaty Sputnik. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Oh, good. oh no. We can't go there, can we? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, Sputnik had actually reportedly vanished in August 1978 while tending to his livestock, only to reappear a couple of months later. Sputnik had admitted he was recruited by the Chinese intelligence services and was subjected to intense psychological pressure and was tasked to write personal anti-Soviet statements until he was acquiesced to become a spy. So there we have an overview of intelligence gathering, recruitment, and military counterintelligence. Now let's take a look at some prominent Chinese spies. So the first Chinese intelligence officer we're going to look at is codenamed Scorpio. And this one was mentioned in Article 2 by KGB counterintelligence officers Major General A.G. Kovalenko and Colonel B.I. Ponomarov. Scorpio was essentially a Chinese national who immigrated to the USSR in 1955 with a wife who was a Soviet citizen. He was recruited after more than a decade-long period of testing and meetings. So this kind of goes back to the sophistication of checks during recruitment process we spoke about earlier. In 1972, he was told to apply for Soviet citizenship as an ethnic Uzbek. He was then told to buy a house in the south of Ukraine or most likely Crimea, which was located near a major shipbuilding on the coast. The embassy supplied him with the necessary funds. He was told to collect intel on economic, military, and scientific technical information. Um, he was His contact was supposed to be with the embassy through a Chinese citizen who lived in Moscow and frequented. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Let's invent new words for the podcast. <laughs> Meaning Sputnik frequented the embassy. We can start a dictionary, the hard dictionary. <laughs> the hard dictionary. We cl- we don't claim to be experts on any of the topics discussed, but my God, will we add to it? We have a split off show. We have a split off show called Midi Sputnik. <laughs> it's our after show where we just it's go a sequel. over. It's just a bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. So his contact was supposed to be with the embassy through a Chinese citizen who lived in Moscow and frequented the embassy's events. 
However, he himself was never to visit the embassy again or go to China during the next 15 years. Now, they don't actually have any further explanation on this in the article, but yeah, I'm going to assume it is because he got captured and he was never able to go back to China again. It sounds, um, it, honestly, it sounds like they murked him. They killed yeah. him. Like, they, yeah, that's a high possibility. I mean, yeah. they could have said that they caught him, but like, as I said, there's no further mention of it. So we can assume that he was probably killed. Right, he disappears from the records. Like, yeah. Okay. <laughs> He's dead. Um, yep, and that's it. No yeah. further record of it. How sad would that be, though? Like, you work your whole life um, towards a goal uh, of something and then you just get killed at the end of it and your name is essentially forgotten. Like, what's left of you is just a code name. Like, how sad is that? Right. Not only that, it sounds like he was pressured into it. Because even just going back, I mean, he was told to do this. You know, he was Mm. told to apply for Soviet citizenship. He was told to buy Mm. a house. marry a wife who was a soviet citizen like his his life was Mm. designed for him and after he'd been used to the point Mm. of we're done with you um he disappears from the record i mean Mm. what do you what do you do with something when you're done with it you get rid of it yeah and like i mean i don't know the answer to this personally but like what's Mm. the protocol if a spy does get caught in the soviet union particularly in this time like does the country does China negotiate with the USSR to bring them back? Like, what happens there? I think you're really curious to know. Um, I think we've all seen Burn Notice. We know what happens. <gasps> Have you guys seen Burn Notice? Oh, of I course. love Burn Notice. It's a great show. So Kovalenko and Ponomarov do not mention how they caught Scorpio and the specifics of when, but they do reveal the kind of the high level of sophistication of the Chinese intelligence efforts. Um, according to Philip, and this is the person that has analysed these KGB documents, in case you've forgotten, he kind of illustrates that the case, uh, the complexities of the case and recruiting the agent and engaging him in a multi-leveled operation with the elements of a genuine spy thriller. Now let's talk a little bit about another agent who is caught, codename Soon. He was oh, arrested. Oh, way too soon. What? <laughs> oh, <laughs> come on. Come on. <laughs> You're killing me. Oh, You're killing there's me. not a lot of bullets about Soon. It does sound like he was terminated a little too soon, so oh. I'm, I'm on board with that. I love puns and I appreciate them so much, but right. you're killing me. <laughs> That's that's hard tack. Puns and bullets. That's true. Puns and bullets all the way. Um, So Soon was arrested for illegally crossing the border between the USSR and China. Apparently, he wanted to immigrate into the USSR for a better life and was released after a short time. Um, Shortly after he was released, he began to engage in intelligence collecting Shortly after he was released, he began to engage in intelligence collection activities both within Chinese immigrant, the Chinese immigrant community and on his own by traveling to Vladivostok and Khabarovsk 
in a personal vehicle monitoring military and heavy industrial locations. After he suspected the KGB was onto him, Soon attempted to flee by stealing a boat on the Amur River, but was arrested before being able to cross into China. He managed to collect Soviet state and military secrets, which evidently led to his sentencing of seven years imprisonment in 1974. Now that kind of seems like a fairly minor, a fairly minor sentence, seven years for espionage, don't you think? Yeah. Um, two things stick out to me. The first is some of the stuff he did, it just reminds me of episode four. Uh, I feel like he would have gotten along with Nancy Wake. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> they would have been besties. <laughs> I'm sorry. Stealing a boat and yeah. fleeing and then crossing into another country sounds a lot like getting wrapped up in a parachute after jumping into France. But, <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, but no, uh, seven years for espionage. I, I, I know uh, during the cold war, there's a lot of famous cases um, at least in the United States where we had U S citizens that were convicted of aiding foreign countries and, and espionage and they were sentenced to death. So mm. seven years. I mean, that's kind of all right. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I wonder if it was because maybe like it, they caught him quite soon. Maybe that, was a factor taken into consideration. Maybe if he was operating in the USSR a lot longer, maybe the punishment would have been a lot longer. But Or maybe he struck know. a deal? He could have struck a deal. Yeah. I you mean, know, if, he's, if he's out for his own survival, it's, you know, yeah, I did this, but I also have information I can give back. Yes. Like, let's just remember, like, your first figure died. So, like, if, if, if he survives this, like, yeah, he's obviously struck a deal. Like, you don't just live as a spy. Right. No one lets you live as a spy. <laughs> no, I mean, that, that's evident of Scorpio. Scorpio, he disappears from the records. This guy got seven years, mm. and it was like, and now, hey, everything's square. We're good now? No, that doesn't sound right. Very different mm. outcomes. So that gives us an idea of what the USSR knew based on, upon their own records. But what about Chinese intelligence? What was the extent of their intel and from where was it obtained? One answer is obvious. China had agents working within the borders of the USSR who collected data through a network of contacts and fed that information back to the intelligence arm of the Chinese military for analysis and authentication. But another source of information existed in the form of what may be seen as an unlikely alliance. Now, Spartan, I believe you did a little bit of research regarding the United States and China's relationship during this time. Yeah, yeah, I did. I did. I did a bit of research on this, and it was interesting considering the the current uh, political climate, specific, you know, specifically between uh, China and the United States right now. Um, but what I what I did discover was that uh, President Richard Nixon had been act, uh, cultivating a relationship with China. Uh, through his national security advisor, Henry Kissinger. Um, some of you are probably very familiar with Kissinger, some are, some maybe not so much. He's worth looking into. Uh, the the, the Nixon-Kissinger relationship is a very interesting study in and of itself. Uh, so for the hardcore history uh, listeners, if you haven't, take a look at that relationship. Uh, Kissinger, Kissinger by himself is quite quite an interesting study. Um, 
on top of that, we have the joint CIA and PLA, and that's the People's Liberation Army, uh, Cold Cold War operation that was known as Operation Chestnut. Now, Operation Chestnut, the beginnings of it dated back to the fall of 1970 when Secretary of State, again, Henry Kissinger, began probing for open dialogue with China through the Pakistani military leader, General Yahya Khan. I um, hope I said that right. Talks continued and resulted, again, talks continuing through this Pakistani military leader. Uh, they resulted in the secret visit, which is very famous now, uh, but was unknown at the time and for years following, by Kissinger to Beijing just the following year. So Nixon and Kissinger made the clandestine trip to Beijing in February of 1972, during which Kissinger had a private meeting with Chinese General Ye Jianying. Kissinger shared top secret information from the CIA with the general specific to the Soviet military. And the information that he shared included kiloton estimates said to be exact uh, that the USSR possessed uh, and nuclear warheads. So this happened on only the second day of the meeting. What this tells us is that Nixon and Kissinger, they had an agenda and they they wasted no time uh, getting, getting what they wanted from China, but also giving what they wanted to China. They knew exactly what they were going there for, and they knew exactly how to build the trust with China. And we're going to get more into that that trust building and what China had to to gain from information like this. Fast forward two years, we have a very different situation following this meeting. Uh, Chinese and American leadership had changed. Nixon had resigned. Watergate had blew up in his face. Uh, among other things, because his handling of Vietnam was a shit show. And Mao was sleeping with the fishes. Uh, for those that might not... Mao's dead at this point, all right? Mm. <laughs> like, <Mao's... laughs> I, I mean, yeah. I assumed as much. <laughs> yeah. Mao fucking kicked the bucket, right? Yeah. What's interesting is that the U.S. and China, because they had this common enemy in the USSR... They remain cooperative, even with changes in national leadership. That doesn't always happen, right? But it did here, which is, I think, notable considering the fact that the relationship, just like it was between the USSR and China, was tenuous between China and the United States. But -hmm. they had this anti-Soviet mentality that went beyond Mm -hmm. the individual leadership. It, It permeated the actual nation. So new Chinese leader steps in. His name is Deng Xiaoping, and he holds the same anti-Soviet sentiment as the U.S. So the United States and China continue to vibe with this anti-Soviet mentality. And the the two nations are kind of really feeling the relationship that they have built upon this mutual disdain for the USSR. The question becomes, is mutual disdain enough to form a bond between the two nations? As is usually the case, there were ulterior motives that compelled the U.S. to share this top-secret information dating back to 72, this this clandestine meeting. Uh, And it was not done simply as an example of American hospitality, which I'm sure everybody is aware of, (laughs) if if they were not already aware of it at the time. It goes without saying, right? The United States also wanted to spy on the USSR and figured the best place to do this was from, does anybody anybody want to hazard a guess here? Oh, I have no idea. You have to tell me. 
guess what? Shocker, China. All right. Oh, wow. I'm yeah. shocked. <laughs> so they shared information, but it was a bit uh, quid pro quo. You can have this if we can have this. What can you do for us? We can do this. What can you give us in return? Uh, one of the things that I had learned uh, while studying this was there was one particular uh, location that, that was across the Chinese border, but bordered China, or I'm sorry, bordered the USSR enough where uh, the United States really wanted to put a, an observation post in this location and it was atop a mountain and mm. it turned into this this joint effort where it was the cia and the intelligence arm of the people's liberation army working together co-located and and mm. and this observation uh this, this observation post on top of this mountain um but anyway anyway so, so go ahead Oh, I was going to say, so essentially what the U.S. had done had basically exchanged uh, nuclear information or what was it the, uh, that you said earlier? Yeah, the exact um, kilotons, yeah. uh, which, which gives you know, China an understanding, an idea or a specific idea. It's not even an idea, I guess. It gives them, hey, the, 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 the Russian nuclear arsenal consists of the following. And we know this for fact. Um, whether that's accurate or not, again, that's going to be the U the United States claiming they know this, right? But China ate that up. Yeah. Okay. So they would have been like, you can have whatever you want because that's all we, we really wanted. So that was kind of, I suppose, the U.S.'s aim was like, here, have these secrets, but in exchange, let us spy in your country on the USSR. Exactly. But let us spy with you. You know, it, it, yeah, it, it's yeah, a, yeah. we'll give you this. We'll spy with you, but also feed us some information in return. Yeah. So I guess it was, you could look at it as an investment. A mutually beneficial relationship. Yeah. The, the, the relationship was symbiotic. It truly was. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that that's mm -hmm. kind of a brief uh, convoluted overview but it should give everybody an idea of how the U.S. and the PRC, you know, the People's Republic of China, became temporary bunkmates. It's also beneficial in determining what China knew because we have a bit more certainty in their intelligence as it can be corroborated by both the PRC and the U.S. given the alliance that occurred at that time. So what exactly did China know? What we can do is we can start with what we can confirm and then we can move on to a little bit of assumption and conjecture. First, it should be stated that Chinese strategy specific to the USSR at this time was a two-pronged approach. Uh, the, first, the first prong being they wanted to maintain a high state of tension in Sino-Soviet relationships, but they wanted to avoid open war. Second, they wanted to take extraordinary measures to strengthen the PRC internally. So, you know, they wanted to increase their status, but their survivability, their independence. To accomplish this, China used the U.S. as a counterweight, as was just exemplified uh, discussing the unlikely alliance between the two. However, so too did the United States want to use China as a counterweight against the USSR for its own interests. Again, this is that quid, quid pro quo. The relationship was symbiotic. China had sought modernization since the end of World War II, 
and key leaders in China, not just current, but, but past. So this spanned uh, multiple uh, generations. They had viewed science and technology as the key to Sino-modernization. The joint disdain for the Soviets gave China an opportunity at modernization through American support. So when you analyze the Cold War, um, much of the discussion is centered on nuclear arms, the containment of communism, and the expansion of democracy. But there were smaller factors that fed into these more strategic goals. For the U.S. and China, much of that cooperation came in the form of state-sponsored scientific internationalism. That's a mouthful. To break that down, uh, from Zhou Yu Wang's article, this is a lengthy article title, U.S.-China Scientific Exchange, a case study of state-sponsored scientific internationalism during the Cold War and beyond, quote, the U.S.-China Scientific Exchange provides a case of what might be termed state-sponsored scientific internationalism during the Cold War, when nation-states, this being China and the United States, often for geopolitical reasons, established the framework for communications and collaboration among scientists across national boundaries, end quote. So we're talking about Chinese modernization and, and the Chinese interest in scientific uh, advancement. This accomplishes that. I mean, the, this, this statement here really kind of sums that up, right? What does it mean, though? Because, again, it, it, it's a mouthful. It's very technobabble, right? Given the nature of the Cold War and the consistent one-upsmanship displayed by the USSR and the U.S. during the nuclear arms race and then the space race, which was also going on, Going back to Sputnik, meaty Sputnik. <laughs> meaty Sputnik, indeed. Meaty yes. Sputnik. <laughs> and any other technological pissing contest the two were involved in, because honestly, <laughs> it was Legion, right? Mm. Intelligence, as it related to scientific progress, was incredibly valuable. So this is where the United States and China found their greatest cooperation. Evidence of that cooperation is glaring in Kissinger's secret visit to Beijing back in 72. Yeah, they discussed Soviet military, its arsenal, specific to, to its nuclear arsenal. But the focus was on nuclear firepower down to the exact kiloton. Intel on nuclear payloads also provided intel on the sophistication of the USSR's nuclear production. So you can claim that you have a nuclear arsenal, but the specific payload, the kilotons, what you actually possess speaks to how robust your nuclear production is, which speaks to the science, the technology that you have, because production doesn't happen without that. So the relationship was largely, again, we've already said this, quid pro quo. Uh, and because of the nature of the relationship, not all information was shared. An example of that is in 1973, here we go back to Henry Kissinger, he made a secret proposal to Premier Zhou Enlai, which has already been, you know, individuals already been mentioned uh, in the previous uh, by Walla. The U.S. was willing to provide China with early warning intelligence information. Uh, this goes, you know, satellite images, Soviet missile launches, and they actually wanted to set up a hotline, a direct line from Washington to China, Beijing. Quote, this is coming from Kissinger, quote, we could also give you the technology for certain kinds of radars, but you would have to build them yourselves, end quote. China did not actually follow up on this offer. Uh, there were a lot of domestic politics that played a role in, in, in their refusal. Um, 
you know, you, you've got a, a an Eastern nation that is looking at modernization and becoming internally independent uh, economically and militarily, scientifically. It's not going to be a popular idea to have to heavily rely on, on a Western nation for that. Espionage during the Cold War was intended to capture enemy communications specific to weapon strength, military movements, and even potential targets, not too different than what we see today. The hope that was each piece of the puzzle could be fit, fitted together into a larger picture that would enable belligerents to kind of determine immediate and future threats. What China knew was that their efforts at modernization, this is that scientific exchange, which their modernization was reliant on, was largely an issue of information specific to the Soviet military complex. So China's cooperation in spying for and with the United States, construction of joint spy bases like we talked about on the top of that mountain on the border, and sharing of information enabled Chinese scientific pursuits. As China modernized and took advantage of the Cold War's two main players, the USSR and the United States, China was able to exploit both nations and evolve into a technological, economic, and militant powerhouse, which set the stage for what we see from China today. So essentially, China's kind of taken a, a backpedal whilst they observed the United States and the USSR being the main players of the Cold War, essentially, and kind of observing and taking notes, right? They, they, they not only took notes, but they benefited from both. You know, mm. you, before the Sino-Soviet uh, Sino split, mm. the USSR was the powerhouse mm. or, or, or the strong arm of that relationship, right? Yeah. And China benefited from that mm. without giving too much, which is what, you know, you know, it it eventually turned into that that intolerance and led to the split, which was a process mm. yeah. as one side refused to make concessions for the other. Mm. And as the Cold War really started to to uh, as the Cold War started to boil over, you've got now where where, where China's already split from from the USSR. A potential ally in the United States, and these two decide that we've got common interests. It's it's anti-Soviet sentiment, you know. Yeah. Uh, we're not necessarily on the same page when it comes down to details, but because of that anti-Soviet sentiment, they were able to form form that alliance, uh, an unlikely alliance, mm -hmm. like we stated previously. China played it smooth, though. The United yeah. States was aggressive in the Cold War. The USSR was mm -hmm. aggressive in the Cold War. China played it smart, sat back and gleaned what they could for national, their own national benefit. And they did yes. it so well. So it wasn't just a matter of taking notes. It was, what are we willing to give up while we can benefit from? And they yeah. did it to both sides. Yeah. So for the listeners, like if this, if, if this seems confusing or convoluted, don't feel singled out because honestly, um, we're just as confused. <laughs> mm -hmm. Nobody, again, yeah. we're not experts in this. We're yeah. talking about espionage. We're talking about intelligence and how events during the Cold War in the 1970s are impacting current international relations today. Mm. Um, all of this is, you know, intelligence and espionage is, is, is a confusing and convoluted topic in and of itself. 
It's mm-hmm. largely based on assumption, partial truth, partial truths, and an observation. There's a lot of they said, they said. It's it, I mean it's hearsay to some extent. Mm. While multiple also pieces. Mind, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Also bear in mind that right now, currently, as far as documents that we can look into this, one of the two nations in this situation no longer exists. And right. one of them still very much exists and still very much cares about the information being spread around. So that does limit how much we can actually know about a thing. Mm. And so that's mm. important to bear in mind as we go through that. No, you're absolutely correct on that. And Again, you know, we've got multiple pieces that are brought together to form that larger picture. Uh, we're still missing pieces. And what that means is that the resulting composition is not always accurate. And by not always accurate, I mean, it's, it's not ever accurate because we've only got so much. And that's what makes espionage so intriguing. You, you really never know. So much of it is speculation. And I, mm-hmm. I, it's fun because of that. I, I don't know if fun's the right word, but it's intriguing. It's, yeah. it's interesting to turn around and chew on for a little bit. Yeah. There's, lim- there's kind of like um, limitless options to kind of um, perceive that, you know, what happened to these people that, that were spying and, yeah. um, you know, if they ended up surviving in the end or if they were imprisoned, we don't really know. And, uh, yeah, it's very, yeah. So now that we're towards the end of it, um, I was curious, what do you guys think makes a good spy? <laughs> so I, I, It's an I, easy question. Come on, oh, yeah, <laughs> spit absolutely. it out. <laughs> I know that back in the episode we talked about earlier, uh, Kuznetsov had, to find his own characteristics, you know, talking about, I think it was like mm. caution, uh, wary, uh, almost paranoid individuals, right? Mm. Uh, well-trained. So I, I took that as self-disciplined. Um, yeah. And, and I guess when, when I think about what makes a good spy that, and again, this is, this is just pure speculation. I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but mm-hmm. I would see it as that somebody who is incredibly observant, um, mm. level-headed, able to quickly adapt. Uh, and, and I think it's important to state that they are isolated. And I, I mean, isolated yeah. where they've got nothing to lose. Mm. They've got nothing to lose because when, when, an agent is discovered, there's always that attempt to turn an agent, right? Mm. At least in, in all the good spy stories, whether it be a book yeah. or a movie, you, you know, mm. uh, you, you've seen. There's always that, what what can we leverage against you? And if you've got nothing to leverage against an individual, um, I think those are good characteristics. I, I also feel like being patient is a large part of, of being a spy. I remember seeing a statistic somewhere and this was a while ago, so I'm, I'm honestly not sure, but um, apparently when it comes to spying, it is 70% waiting and 30% action. That's so not a bad be... ratio. That's not a bad ratio. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like you have to be prepared to play the long game. Yeah. If, if you're going to be a spy, you, you can't just expect it to be like you go into a building and you, and you take, um, 
information out or whatever and right. it's all done with and you're into the next job yeah like, do, do, do you want to rob a bank or do you want to do you want to commit a heist yeah exactly it, that's exactly the difference um there's a lot of preparation that you have to do and waiting and yeah you'd have to be a really patient person that's prepared to take years of your life towards a certain cause you know yeah and that's going back to when you ask, like, what makes a good spot? I mean, good for mm-hmm. who? Um, <laughs> you know, if you're, if you're the nation asking this question, and Spartan talked about this a lot, was that, like, you, you, you want somebody as a nation who you can rely on who will report solely back to you. But then there's, like, this other definition you can say, like, well, if they're a really good spy, then they would be able to be able to just change effectively given the nature of the situation in case like the nature just says fuck you you know their mm-hmm. hiring nation yeah. that just says that um other key part is always have people that you can trust um i i kind of think of nathan hale for america you know um he was a spy but he ended up getting hanged um, because of all it takes is one person one peep and then you're blown especially Mm -hmm. back during cold war where there's you know this great intensity and mccarthyism in the u.s so you gotta have like places you can trust and also eliminate the sources because you don't want too many because if you have too many wells you know well each new thing you have is a mistake waiting to happen. So have limited, have trusted, and have the information everyone's interested in. And yeah, that's absolutely. kind of, regardless, that would always be a good definition of a spy, in my opinion. Absolutely. Um, trust is a, so is a major of, factor in, in, sorry, you were going to say? And Spartan, you had already talked about that. But like uh, trust, yeah, trust. <laughs> Kind of an ironic thing, though, because you're spying, mm-hmm. so you're not going to be trustworthy, but you're kind of feigning your intentions. But at the mm-hmm. same time, you have to have a good trust. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's a, it's a very um, a tricky part of espionage, I would imagine. So evidently, like overall, it would take a really special um, person um, a well-trained person for that matter to undertake these kinds of um, uh, duties for the country you know so hats off to hats off to them I guess so there we have the Soviet Chinese spy wars in a nutshell we hope that this episode increased your interest in the world of espionage it is certainly fascinating to see how the Soviets and Chinese during this period went from as went from being sophisticated allies to unstable adversaries we hope you enjoyed your time with us and if you'd like to continue the, continue the discussion or add to it, you can find us on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, Twitter or Instagram, all available through our link tree found in the episode description. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with comments, questions or suggestions for future episodes. Please do take the time to leave us a review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Um, we, do it. We, we, <laughs> do do it. it or else. <laughs> um, we, we really do appreciate all of the support. Um, and please tune in next Wednesday for episode seven as we take a trip via air, land and sea in an assortment of unconventional military vehicles. 
So thank you for listening and remember to keep your hard tack dry.